Welcome to the Military Psychology Podcast Network, the Society for Military Psychology, Division 19 of the American Psychological Association, is producing several series applying psychological principles in military settings. We'll feature topics including diversity, consulting, behavioral health in the military, and specialty areas. We address the question, what is military psychology, and answer it a number of ways. Follow the Society for Military Psychology at www.militarypsych.org. The Intro to Military Psychology podcast is an official podcast by the Society for Military Psychology, Division 19 of the American Psychological Association. It does not represent the position of the American Psychological Association or any of its other divisions or subunits. The contents, views, or opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the Department of Defense, Uniformed Service University, Department of the Army, Navy, or the Air Force. All right. So welcome back to the show. I have you know, today with me here, retired Air Force psychologist, Mark Stahl. Welcome to the show. I also have Keen with me again, and I'm Ethan Banner. We're kicking off another episode of the Intro to Military Psychology podcast, and we're really excited to get into some of this material. Mark Stahl is well known in the military psychology community for his work in ethics of military psychology, as well as his work in operational psychology. We hope to get more into those topics today. But Mark, hey, welcome to the show. What's going on, man? Thanks, Ethan. Thanks, Keen. It is a pleasure to be here. I really appreciate the invitation. Yeah. Well, hey, so great to get the podcast started on a strong note. You're a powerhouse, I think, in military psychology. And, yeah. you know, when people think Division 19, people that I've talked about military psychology with always recommend your books, always recommend some of your readings in ethics and operational psych. And hey, that was one of the things that got me really interested in military psychology to begin with, just sort of idea of like, what's this operational component? You know, people are starting to say words like embedded and stuff like that, it, you know, caught my attention. Absolutely. So, hey, man, you're, you're one of the big names. So, hey, really, really great to have you. Maybe we could get started by, you know, just telling us a little bit about yourself, a little bit about maybe you could start with your educational training and your background and how you got into this. So I probably like everybody, you know, I'm going to grad school and I went to school out at um, what's now known as Palo Alto University, it used to be Pacific Graduate School of Psychology out in Palo Alto, California. Got to be one of the most beautiful places out there. My wife and I were just married and looking at grad school locations. And I think I, you know, I applied to a bunch of them. I got into the University of South Dakota and I got into a place in LA and then a place out in Palo Alto. And she said, well, you know, what do you think would be best? And I'm <laughs> thinking to myself, I was born and raised just outside of Detroit, Michigan. So I'm thinking, boy, it's it's cold here. Do I really want to go to South Dakota with all due respect for other South Dakotans that are out there? I'm like, well, we got to go to California, right? So it's either LA or North Bay, Northern California. What do you think? And she had had some amazing experiences out in San Francisco. So it was like, that's, you know, sold on that idea. So went out there, did grad school. And then like everybody else, kind of looking around to figure out what do I do for this internship thing? Right. And uh, I applied to VAs and a number of kind of medical schools that had built in postdocs and other things at the time. I was sort of thinking I wanted to be a neuropsychologist. So I did an extra year in graduate school in kind of really neuropsychometry. So the, you know, the ability to give neuropsychological assessments or tests. Mm-hmm. And I thought that would be a great, I was working in a private practice as a practicum in a neuropsych place there in Bay in California. I thought this was a, this would be a perfect launching point. So I applied to a number of places that had built in neuro postdocs. That was the thinking. My dissertation chair and kind of my mentor in grad school was Roger Green, who is kind of a big MMPI guy. And anyway, and he had had some work with the army and had good relationships with the army and the army internships. So he said, you know what, Mark? You probably ought to, in addition to all these other places you're thinking, look at the military. They have some outstanding internships. They pay really well. And like probably like a lot of people, I was coming out of grad school with a lot of debt. Yeah. So I'm thinking to myself, boy, you know, I don't need more debt. And looking at some of these internship sites, where at the time, and I get it, I'm, we're going back now 25 to, you know, 25 to almost 30 years. But looking back, they were paying like twelve to $15,000 a year for an internship. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking to myself, I'm coming out of this expensive place. I've got a bunch of debt. 
you know, what's going to help bridge toward a real adult future for me? Maybe the military, maybe the prison systems, maybe something in Indian affairs, something that pays a little bit better and that I could help get some debt relief. So anyhow, looked into the military, was really, really leaning toward the army. On my own dime, flew out to uh, to Tripler out in Hawaii. Mm-hmm. And, you know, beautiful place. I'm thinking to myself, oh, Honolulu, this is maybe a really good decision. And I went in and just talked to a bunch of the army interns. And I said, you know, I know a little bit about the difference between the Air Force, the Army, the Navy, in a general sense between the services and their military missions. But what would it be like in terms of how, what would the difference be as a psychologist? And I know I was just talking to army people, but basically they said, you know, we're all paid the same. We all serve the same, you know, the same great nation. We're all wearing the uniform, but the air force is probably the kinder and gentler space. (laughs) And uh, at the time I was married, you know, wife was about to get pregnant. And I was thinking about, boy, you know, a good friend of mine, Scott Johnston had just gotten off an aircraft carrier in the Navy and Scott, God bless you, Scott, <laughs> if you're listening. <laughs> but I, like He loves the Navy, loved the Navy. So after I talked with Scott and recognized that, okay, six months on an aircraft carrier, probably not my thing with a brand new spouse and the thought of children coming and starting a family. I then talked with some of the army interns and a number of them had been prior enlisted who had deployed during Desert Storm Mm -hmm. as well as had deployed for Bosnia. And uh, both of them talked about four to six month deployments. They talked about a a number of field related training sessions, which, you know, in retrospect, sound exciting. But at the time for, uh, you know, a young Midwestern boy who was thinking of starting a family and starting a career and looking for stability, it just wasn't something that I was planning at the time. And so the Air Force, you know, the joke was always, hey, the Air Force picks out its golf courses before it picks out its flight lines, right? So it's going to look, it's going to look for a place that's nice, that's safe, that is, you know, a very professional environment. And when I went out to the Air Force internships to interview, they basically were trying to sell me on this, the civilianization of the Air Force. I mean, the, you know, these Air Force folks were basically saying, hey, we're like, don't be frightened by joining the military. We're basically like a civilian medical center, but we just wear the uniform and we get to serve our country and we get, you know, better pay and benefits. And so that was a, Mm. that was a big selling point for me at the time. Now, ironically, looking back 25 years later, I spent so much of my career around the army and so much in kind of field environments and, you know, a dozen deployments and all the rest that, you know, it would have worked out fine either way. You just never know. But you know, they always say that basically plans are crap, but planning is everything. So I wanted to kind of set the right plan going in, even though it didn't survive first contact. And I deviated pretty quickly in terms of my own career trajectory. So I went off to Wilford Hall, a medical center in San Antonio, Texas with the Air Force. All right. Nice. Yeah. 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 <laughs> cool. Got used to sweating the moment I stepped out of my apartment. <laughs> and uh, But, uh, you know, it was great. It was a great experience. And one of the things I would say for anybody who's looking at an experience like a military type residency, what they call a residency or internship, is the diversity of experience, the diversity of exposure, and that early opportunity to take on responsibility, really not commensurate with your abilities or with your maturity. I mean, it's awesome. So it was a great chance to sample a whole lot of things. And then, of course, Mm -hmm. I incurred a three-year commitment, which is the standard. And coming out of that, my first assignment was at Kirtland Air Force Base in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And I went into position as a flight commander where I was supervising 26 staff members as a young captain and brand new minted psychologist. I had finished my dissertation before I started my internship. Mm -hmm. And that allowed me to kind of quickly move toward my licensure hours. And they have a number of senior psychologists in that area. What used to be the inspection agency was at the same location or site there in Albuquerque. So I had somebody supervise me. And within a year, I was able to pick up my license. And then I'm off and running and supervising two psychiatrists, a couple psychologists, a, you know, a bunch of social workers, some wow. paraprofessional kind of KDAC certified alcohol counselors, as well as a number of mental health technicians and kind of other program staff. So it was a great sink or swim environment. And that's sort of part of my both love and pitch to people that are considering military psychology is it really throws you into an environment where you might feel, hey, I'm, I'm not quite ready for this. But the good news is, you know, they know that and everybody else is in the same boat. And if you can adapt to that, 
man, the kind of experience and exposure you get is just incredible, right? I mean, the downside mm-hmm. is maybe you know, a mile wide and only uh, you know a couple meters deep, but you get experience for everything from, you know, you might be pulling call at an ER one weekend to supervising some paraprofessional staff running an alcohol group the next to managing a weight management treatment group the next to consulting, you know, with a commander on personnel issues or, you know, maybe doing some outreach talks, but you're also then functioning as a staff officer. So you're writing policies, you're developing OIs and SOPs and things like that. So, I mean, it's just a great opportunity at a very early step in your professional career to take on a whole lot of experiences, right? When I kind of put my head up about two or three years later, after having been that flight commander down in Albuquerque, I looked at my peers, some friends that I had graduated with, and you know they had gone into some postdocs or other cliques, and they were running one group for those two or three years. They worked on a research project and did outpatient therapy, but that was it. you know. And they were on a staff where they were kind of low on the rung. And so anyways, it was just a looking back, it was a great opportunity. And I think it really set me up for success when it came then to stepping off and specializing after the fact. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Yeah, the military really has a tendency to throw you in not only as a clinician, but also into leadership positions and, you know, these pretty high powered positions as an entry level, you know, psychologist. It's invigorating and intimidating all in the same. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I I know that like a lot of people like being kind of a a Jack or Jill of, uh, you know, but master of none is sort of the the role, at least initially. Right. Mm -hmm. So at the end of that assignment, I told my wife and she and I had we have a pretty egalitarian sort of uh, relationship. We had kind of said, all right, well, let's do one assignment. That's kind of that one pump is what we owe the military. Now we've got, you know, you've got a couple of years of really good experience. You're licensed. You know, we've started to repay some loans. What do you want to do now? And so I looked around, I applied to a number of police psychology positions at different kind of state police and sheriff's departments, because that was sort of an area that I thought would be interesting and appealing. I applied to a couple academic positions because I enjoy writing and I enjoy publishing and kind of thinking through the art of discovery when it comes to psychology and its applications. But then I also applied to, you know, sort of stay in the in the Air Force. And the deal I made was, I told my wife, Laura, if I can get a position at the Air Force Academy as an instructor teaching, then I'll stay. Mm-hmm. If I can't, or I'll also apply for a postdoc fellowship. If I can't get one of those two, which is kind of a, like a plum attractive option, then maybe I'll just pull chalk and I will go work in the civilian you know, VA or as a police psychologist. And anyhow, the point is I, I didn't get the postdoc fellowship, but I did get picked up for the Air Force Academy. So I went off to what they call DFBL, Department of uh, Behavioral Sciences and Leadership at the Air Force Academy in Colorado Springs. And I was a professor mm-hmm. there. And I was the director of their Cadet Counseling Center, which is now their Peak Performance Center, and also taught you know, Psych 101 or Behavioral Sciences 101 and Theories of Personality and Abnormal and the counseling class and all sorts of things. And it was amazing. It was just a great opportunity. And that's another, you know, that's another thing you're going to probably get some themes from me. What I have loved about my military psychology career is the diversity of opportunity. It's just, I think it's unparalleled, to be honest with you, anywhere that I've looked. So was professor there for three years, loved it. And when I was leaving there, my wife and I did the same thing. Okay, now we've got whatever it is, seven, eight years in, what should we do? Because I'm not yet past a point where I felt like I was owned by the man, if they, you know, as they say. <laughs> so I wanted to make a decision that made sense for the family. I said, right, well, I'm going to apply for another postdoc fellowship. And if I get it, I'll take it. If I don't, let's go. Because now I'm a associate professor coming from the Air Force Academy, licensed, all the rest. I could get a really good teaching position somewhere, I think. And I got picked up for the aviation psychology or aerospace psychology fellowship at that point and went off to NASA. Mm-hmm. And so that was another thing wow. I talked with at the time. She was Colonel Dana Bourne, but ended up being General Bourne. And I asked her, she was my department head, and ultimately, the dean at the Air Force Academy said, hey, you know, Dana, what would you recommend? I can pick almost any place now to do a fellowship. I'm looking at NASA. I was looking at the U.S. Olympic Training Center. I was looking at something down in UT Austin. And she said, Mark, it's just like no comparison. you got to go to NASA, right? So obviously, <laughs> yeah, obviously. So so went out there and as part of their system safety branch and kind of human factors branch out in Mountain View, California. So it was old stomping grounds right near Palo Alto. So finally, I could actually afford to live in this amazing place. 
place, which was so much fun. And we lived on NASA's campus. So I could literally walk to my lab, you know, or bike or whatever. So did that. It was a one-year fellowship in human factors engineering or systems engineering. Mm -hmm. And then from there, the Air Force typically guarantees you or tries to target a utilization tour. So, you know, whatever your functional area is, had I gone and done a neuro fellowship, they would have found a place to plug me in to be a practicing neuropsychologist, or had I done a a child or pediatric fellowship, you know, whatever it was, they were then going to plug me in. So in this case, an aerospace operational psychology fellowship locks you kind of into one of a, a handful of billets that are within Special Operations Command. And at the time, this is now going back 18 years. So there were very few, you know, slots, really, there were two or three operational psychologists in the Air Force at that point. And so uh, really, it was Carol Green and and Joe Callister and then me. And so anyhow, I took a position down at Hurlburt Field assigned to the what was then the 16th SOG. So the 16th Special Operations Group. A couple of years later, they stood down the 16th and stood up the first. So it just changed its designation, which occasionally happens with military units, and then became the first SOG. So I was assigned to 14 flying units that were all Special Operations units running the the range from old 53 helicopters, so like the Jolly Green Giant rescue helicopters, all through what became like the CV-22 Ospreys and all the C-130 mm-hmm. and AC-130 gunships and so on. So anyways, spent a, a tour down there in Florida and man, another beautiful place. So that's another pitch, right? I mean, I know that there are some less exciting geographical spots, but if I was making the pitch to somebody who was thinking about this as a choice, there are a lot of amazing spots. We love Texas and kind of the hill country and what that experience was like being in Texas. We loved Albuquerque and the Southwest. And we lived in a adobe house and, you know, (laughs) next to a giant arroyo. And I mean, it was just so picturesque wedged between this, gosh, the petroglyphs on one side and the Rio Grande in the middle. And then Mm -hmm. I'm messing up on the tramway setup. It's the highest tramway in North America. It's pretty impressive in Albuquerque. And then come to Florida and it's literally the Emerald Coast, right? I mean, you're living on these these like white sugar beaches. And I mean, it was really, really beautiful. So anyhow, spent three years there. And that's really now 9-11 had kicked off. So we were hot and heavy in the war, mm-hmm. both in Iraq and Afghanistan. And I think that's really when I started. I had already deployed as part of something called Operation Northern Watch to Turkey back in late 1999, early 2000s for a few months. But then now I started deploying pretty regularly. And so sometimes twice a year, other times just once a year. But I think there's probably only one year in 10 that I missed a deployment year. So I was spending a lot of time on the road. But I'll be honest with you, even though that was tough with a family of three little kids, my deployment experiences were probably by far the best experiences I've ever had in the military. And you know, when I initially came in, I remember a speaker came in and they had, they had done a, a humanitarian relief in Haiti mission. And this psychologist came in and said, you know, this is back in the 95, 96 timeframe. If you have a chance to deploy, take it because you're probably only going to get one chance in your entire 20 to 25 years to ever go overseas like that and deploy. And I remember, you know, it's so funny because then, you know, things happen and that's just not true at all, right? So you've got as much, many opportunities as you wanted, but some of the best experiences of my life and best experiences of my career have been overseas. And certainly there are things when it comes to the operational psychology that you just can't do stateside. Those opportunities for those mission sets typically only exist overseas. So again, just another way to use your tradecraft. So I spent three years down at Hurlburt Field and then took an assignment up at JSOC, Joint Special Operations Command at Fort Bragg, and was assigned there as one of the command psychologists and spent several years there. Then went to another assignment. At the time, it was the 24th Special Tactics Squadron and also up at uh, Pope Air Force Base, and then went to a, a data mast unit for a couple few years. And then at that point, you know, the Air Force does this weird thing when if you make 06, if you become promoted to a colonel, mm-hmm. there's a group called the Colonel's Group, and they kind of take over, and they really own you. And, uh, you know, even <laughs> sometimes if it's uh, an assignment that doesn't make a whole lot of sense for you and your family, they oftentimes say, well, you know what? We're doing it anyway. And so at that point, when I got picked up as an 06, I was sent down to be our functional, the functional for operational psychology down at AFSOC headquarters back at Hurlburt Field. So I spent the last you know year or two of my career living on an island, Okaloosa Island out in, you know, off of the Emerald Coast. And it was amazing. I, I like <laughs> it. I tell my wife, it was probably the best, even though it was a staff job, 
which doesn't sound like a lot of fun. You know, at that point, it was okay. I enjoy writing. I enjoy working on policy. Mm-hmm. And at that point, as a you know, as a colonel and a very experienced person in the field, in the military, you can kind of do a lot of the things that you want to, and you don't have to do a lot of the other things. You can kind of push off to the captains <laughs> and the majors and so on, and even, even the lieutenant colonels. So I lived on an island, and I would walk out each morning and listen to the surf while I had my cup of coffee and espresso. I would drive you know, my 10 minute commute into our staff office and, you know, live in a cubicle land like a lot of staff officers do. But at the end of the day, and it wasn't a long day, which is great about staff work, I'd go back out and I'd end my day in a lawn chair, sipping a bourbon, whiskey neat, and just watch the sun roll down and watch some people surf and hang out. So it was a beautiful, beautiful place and a great way to end my active duty career. And then I chose to punch at 20 and head back up to the Fort Bragg area where I worked for the last about five years as a contractor. And I work with one of the special operations units that I used to be an active duty person assigned to. And that's uh, that takes me up in terms of military career. I know it was a long journey, so I, I appreciate the patience sort of stepping it through. But <laughs> you know, different assignments and different experiences have just really shaped my enthusiasm for being a military psychologist. And I know we didn't really talk about it, but kind of along the way, I've always been a little bit of a participant in Division 19, the Society for Military Psychology. Mm-hmm. That was something I joined back in 1994 when I was a grad student. It was something that kind of I thought was interesting, appealed to me. I didn't know for sure at that point that I was headed in that direction. But then ultimately, it led to the point where once I was you know, getting at the point of retiring, I thought, uh, I've got some more white space on my calendar. I think I want to have a more active role and you know, try to you know, run for being the president of the society and, sure. and take on other opportunities incredible history. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Just thinking about your experiences make me want to join the Air Force right now. <laughs> do it, King. Do it. <laughs> then Dr. Johnston will probably say something to me because I'm also in the Navy. <laughs> well, yeah, Keen's already, already slated for the Navy, so he's headed, right. he's headed to Portsmouth here not too long from now. Well, you are headed to a great place, Keen. And I, I am a big believer of one team, one fight. So I have good friends in the Navy, good brothers and sisters in both the Navy and the Army and supporting the Corps that I deployed with and that I work with now. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, nothing but love for the DOD for me. Yeah, of course. And I think there are so many things that you said just now that I felt like something that's very relevant to people who are thinking about becoming a military psychologist. The things that you share, your experiences is kind of so relevant to people who are thinking about joining the military. And I think there is a myth. Or maybe it's true. I really don't know because I haven't lived the experience, which is to, it's difficult to balance family and also your career. And from your example, you can make it through if you wanted to. And another thing that I think it's uh, very relevant to today's podcast, our episode today is just talking about what is military psychology. And I think you gave a broad swath of what the possibility of what military psychology can be. And, And I think for other clinical psychology profession, you're either in a private practice or you work in a hospital. But in your case, it's not just that you're working at a range of uh, things. So that comes to this question that I wanted to ask you based on your experience, what do you think is military psychology? Yeah. So it's an interesting thing to think about. You wouldn't think it would be hard to answer. And I don't, I don't actually, I don't think it's hard Mm -hmm. to answer. I think the answer is military psychology is a microcosm of American psychology. So what I mean by that is, you know, if you look across sort of the broad spectrum of largely applied disciplines or sub-disciplines or specialties within psychology as they occur in the United States, you see things like, of course, clinical psychology, and you see clinical neuro, and you see clinical child or pediatric, you see health or primary care psychology, you see a variety of IO psychology and kind of organizational consultation, and so on and so on. You see sports psychology. Well, all of that is contained within military psychology. There are military psychologists Mm -hmm. that do all of those things. I mean, we have uniformed as well as non-uniformed members supporting the military or the Department of Defense that are neuropsychologists, that are health and primary care psychologists, that are child or pediatric psychologists, that are sports psychologists or human performance-oriented psychologists. And in addition to that, you also have, so not only do you have all these specialties, and you have these kind of clinicians who are kind of bridging in small ways all those gaps. If you go back to a time in American psychology, in psychology in the U.S., prior to all of the kind of stovepipe specialties that exist now. So literally, I mean, 30, 40 plus years ago, you had clinical psychologists that, 
you know, would do kind of some neuropsychology. And that's sort of what was grown out of or into neuropsychology. And you had psychologists that were doing kind of performance applications to athletes and sport domain and so on. And that's sort of a a kind of progenitor to what became sports psychology and so on. Well, all that's still happening in the military. You have clinicians that are largely touching the periphery of this full spectrum of applied service. And so that's really what I think military psychology is. But then it happens within this unique domain of national security, national defense, and public safety. So that becomes kind of a, a specialized area of which you see this full spectrum of applied application. And certainly in general, a military psychology probably best fits in a general applied psychology category, right? And within the APA, we're thought of as what's called a gap division. So that is a general applied psychology professional kind of domain or background. But yeah, I I mean, military psychology, all those things, and then military psychologists, as I was trying to emphasize before, take on these additional roles of being a staff officer, of being a military officer, mm-hmm. all these kind of you know dual agency, potentially multiple relationship sorts of kind of activities or functions. And it makes military psychology interesting. It makes it, you know, certainly makes it more challenging at times, but I think that's exciting. I think it just adds kind of a dynamic that doesn't always exist in other places. And the good news is for people Mm -hmm. that are sometimes afraid of it, thinking kind of the ethics of, man, I don't know, like I've read places where this dual agency or this idea that you're kind of working for the system and yet how are you supporting the person and it seems complicated. Yeah. The truth is it sounds a lot more complicated than it is and it's sound bited as a lot more difficult to navigate than it really is also. So one of the things that I've really loved and appreciated is writing about and talking about ethics and certainly military psychology is a great place to do that. I think, and this is just my opinion, that there are a lot of people that are very knowledgeable about ethics, but there are very few people that are very experienced about ethics and when it comes to ethics. And I would say military psychologists are one of uh, a handful of kind of specialties or practice domains that are, are literally and probably should be better known as ethics experienced. What I mean by that is they regularly have to be challenged with the issues of dual agency, multiple relationships, limits to informed consent, the risk of unstipulated harm, all that kind of stuff. And they navigate that. But the good news is both the APA ethics code, as well as a lot of the other written guidance is written in a manner that allows the freedom to navigate that pretty well. And I would say in the 25 years of experience I've had supporting the military and the Department of Defense, I can probably count on one hand when I've ever met up with a commander or a decision maker, an organizational decision maker, who has kind of really pushed hard back at me when I've said, hey, sir, or hey, ma'am, we're getting into an area that has a risk to jeopardize my license, or we're going to, you know, you're asking me to do something where I'm concerned ethically. Whenever that has Mm -hmm. happened, and it hasn't happened often, where I've had to actually come to someone and say, I'm not sure I can do what you're asking me. I can't think of a single time, and I'm being kind of, you know, honest mark on this. I can't think of a single time where a commander or an organizational decision maker has said, I don't care, you know, Doc Stahl, I don't care, Mark, like you have to do it anyway. I'm telling you to do it. Like almost always the reaction is, oh my gosh, I had no idea. Really? Can you tell me more about that? Okay. Well, I mean, so do you think it's just off the table or is there a way that we can kind of get to a yes some other way without putting you in this position, right? That has always been the answer for me. And I don't think I'm an anomaly. And I've, I have certainly been in environments that can be ethically challenging and had to navigate points of friction that I've written about you know, in the past. And so anyway, like, I think that is probably taking us down a rabbit hole on that. But, I, you know, I wanted to seem to seem apropos and appropriate to sort of just address that issue of, you know, some of the potential friction points in military psychology as we talk about what military psychology is. Yeah, it is appropriate because I think we pose the question, what is military psychology? And you talk to one military psychologist, they're going to give you one answer. You talk to another, they're going to give you another answer. It's just so... So dependent on on your experience and your perspective. And I think one of the challenges of answering that question is just just that, you know, we have so many unique facets, you know, being a military psychologist and one of them being dealing with ethical challenges. And I think sometimes it baffles the people that I talk to that you can be somebody's therapist 
and be this person's buddy and eat at the chow hall. And that's just how things work. And if you think about the civilian equivalent of, of a therapist, you will never get that experience. You'll never eat with your client. You'll never eat with your, your patients. And I think that basically is part of a military psychology itself. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, you know, that kind of thing exists in rural environments. You know, there's, you know, a whole area of practice, rural psychology, rural mental health that has to navigate and has had to navigate those issues, you know, for decades and decades. And there are other places like that too. You know, if you're an internal consultant to an organization as an IO psychologist, right? I mean, you may be working it as part of an EAP program, or maybe you're doing HR kind of personnel suitability screening for placement, but you're also consulting on other kinds of talent management and kind of the development of people within an organization. So there are analogies to those kinds of, you know, potential ethical friction points that exist in other practice domains. We're not alone in that. It's true if you're a forensic practitioner and doing jury selection or consulting, you know, with a law firm about prospective jurors or, you know, profiling clients or any number of things, right? So there are other examples. It's just that military, I think for the, some of the people that are out there becomes a little bit of either an easy punching bag or uh, or just kind of a little bit of a scapegoat for some of these ethical quandaries. But quite frankly, there's almost none of them that are unique to military psychology. They are resident in other practice domains as well. But more salient in our case, because like I said, just based on your experience, you've been a professor, you work with NASA, you've been a consultant to the special forces. And what else? You know, you've been many different places and all those different areas have their own little ethical challenges. And being a military psychologist kind of puts you in that position to the phrase that you use early on, ethical experience or... Yeah. Ethics experienced. Yeah, yeah. So that you've, yeah. you've actually had experience dealing with real world ethics in real time that have real impact on you that you have to navigate successfully, right? You know, or do the best you can, right? And that's what I tell you what, one of the things I know that there's a love hate relationship with the American Psychological Association at times. But one of the things that I love, and I really appreciate about the APA and its ethics code is it has this word embedded into many, many, many of its standards. And that is reasonable, right? And it says things like, you know, that the practitioner will make reasonable steps to do, you know, X, Y, Z. And what does reasonable mean? Reasonable is defined in the ethics code as, you know, what do other practitioners of similar experience facing similar circumstances in similar situations, what are they likely to do? It doesn't mean we'll never do XYZ, we'll only do ABC. What it means is, hey, you will be like the other practice standard of those in your community based on your experience, your education, your training, and your circumstances. And, you know, obviously you'll do the, the best you can to make the right decision and the right ethical call, and you'll consult and all those good things. But it is a challenging environment, but we've been equipped with the right tools to make good ethical decisions. And I would say 99.9% .9 of the time, we can navigate those without incident. I think there's just so much great content in in these conversations. And we're pulling in a lot of different organizations here. You're talking about the criminal justice system a minute ago. We're talking about the Department of Defense, NASA. You know, I think one of the big goals of this podcast is to talk more about the unconventional, the non-clinical, psych, you know, psychological practice skills and tools that we use in the military. And Mark, you had referenced a couple of jobs that you have held or, you know, you talk about the aviation fellowship. You've said things like operational psychology. You've said things like applied psychology. You know, I'm wondering if you could speak more to what those things are for maybe the listener who's only focused throughout their graduate training on clinical practice and doing therapy. Military psychology is much more than that. And we've kind of been brushing up against that throughout this whole conversation. But I'm wondering if you could dive a little bit deeper and maybe pick one of those operational psychology or aviation psychology. Like, what does that actually look like? You know, what were those tasks? What were those jobs that you were actually doing? Sure. That's a great question, Ethan. And I'm going to talk in more absolute terms and recognize that there's a whole lot of gray and fuzziness where, you know, where something starts or, or ends in the actual practice of things. But sometimes it's helpful just for the academic exercise of putting them in kind of buckets and, and acting as though they're very discrete constructs when they're not always that way. So clinical psychology is obviously a practice area within applied psychology. It's, you know, thinking about where psychology meets the real world and is not sort of an academic research related, not that those things can't 
be real world related either, but like literally you have a person in front of you and you're doing things to affect change in the way that they think or behave or change a system in which they operate in, that sort of thing. That's kind of what I mean by applied psychology in a general sense, certainly operational and aviation psychology being good subsets of applied psychology. So in aviation psychology, as an example, as a, sort of a bleed in, it's where I'll start and then I'll end in operational applications of psychology. But aviation psychology, think about this is going to take us back in our history, right? So really, you know, they say, gosh, necessity is the mother of invention. So the necessity of World War I came around and, you know, there was this need to figure out hey, who's going to be capable to fly airships? Who's going to be capable to be a ground troop? Who is maybe just capable to cook the food, you know, and whatever, and, and shoot or shoot a rifle or whatever it is, right? So we really just had to design some sort of assessment and selection tools or instruments. And many of you out there are probably familiar with Robert Yerkes, who at the time was the president of the American Psychological Association in, in 1917. He was looking around and he saw all these other sciences being applied to the military military and to kind of the national security architecture and said, I think psychology has a role in this. And it's interesting because Robert Yerkes, although ultimately became a, a uniformed service member and was extremely active in supporting military psychology, he was initially against the war. He felt the United States shouldn't go to war. Mm -hmm and thought that was probably not appropriate. But once we were in it, recognized the necessity of psychology playing a role in helping the nation and the service members. So anyways, that, of course, then kind of led to his creation of the Army Alpha and Beta, right? So these are the, the verbal and nonverbal tests to use to do mass screenings, of which I think by 1919, there were like 2 million in military inductees that had been screened to try to find some kind of selection sort of element and I'll just sort of do sound bites here, but it's going to lead into the aviation component, right? At the same time, civilian aviation is developing, right? And as we move toward World War II, now there's an even greater sense of, okay, now we actually have, you know, this isn't just kind of Wright Brothers stuff. We've got a bunch of aircraft and how do we figure out who has the aptitude, right? So we need IQ tests, aptitude tests, who has the suitability or adaptability. So now we probably need some personality tests. And in what way does performance change based on individual differences? So how do we measure all those things? Well, psychologists supporting largely the military defense initiatives, national security, and aviation piled into trying to better understand all those features, right? So whether that was giving aptitude tests and adaptability tests or personality screening tests, or working on training environments to enhance the quality of pilot training or aircrew training, all that fed into this kind of specialization. So what you've got is in kind of modern day, if I fast forward, modern day aviation psychology, you've got people that are doing assessment and selection instruments associated with aptitude and adaptability and the right kind of individual difference characteristics associated with success in pilot training, right? So there's screening there. There's a lot of cognitive heavy and neurocognitive screening happening in pilot training and in aircrew training because of the amount of person-machine interface that's required and the complexity of what's happening, the speed of learning, the speed of processing, as well as kind of the depth and complexity of what's required to be successful. So that's a big part of it. Of course, then there are, you know, there are aircrew that struggle to adapt. So one of the things that I did when I was down at AFSOC headquarters, we have a training squadron there that basically reclasses and moves people from one airframe to another airframe, right? Whether it's fixed wing to rotary wing or just, you know, different kind of dimensions. Well, that kind of change sometimes creates a physiological reaction, even in a high functioning air crew member. Mm. So helping them struggle you know, and adapt or navigate through air sickness as a good example. So many of you may be familiar with a barony chair, kind of that spinning chair, right? You know, that, that kind of yeah. creates some of those vestibular experiences and helping them with, you know, setting them up with compensatory strategies of relaxation training and visualization mm -hmm. and, you know, diaphragmatic breathing and all the rest to manage their anxiety as well as to manage the actual physiological reactivity that they're having in that kind of flight environment. I think what I was saying, and I'm just trying to, I'll move from aviation psychology to the operational psychology, which is really where I ended my career and, and spent most of my time. Both of those types of work within the military oftentimes benefit from someone who is an embedded provider, someone who is literally assigned or positioned within an operational 
element within a larger, you know, on a military base. And so that means being assigned to a line commander. And at times that raises that question that we addressed earlier about dual agency and, mm-hmm. and not having kind of the protective coverings of a large medical center or hospital. Certainly the majority of military psychologists have that, are assigned to an MTF or a military treatment facility or a small clinic. And so right. they have that buffer. For those that are looking for a little bit more adventure outside of the traditional clinical role, those things are great opportunities and oftentimes work best when you are assigned to a military commander as opposed to a military medical officer. You then have direct access to a decision maker. You are consulting with literally the organizational leader or one of the organization's leaders, as opposed to kind of working your way through and navigating a series of layers to get to that person to be able to affect change for real people in real time. Sure. And as an operational provider, as an operational psychologist, you know, in the general sense, that definition is is kept broad intentionally to be the psychological, so the application of psychological science to national security, national defense, and public safety in a very practical kind of day-to-day version. It kind of depends on what that mission is of that operational unit. So someone who is assigned to an RPA unit, a remote piloted aircraft or UAV unit, it may be consulting with personnel on talent management. It might be helping them deal with kind of subclinical issues, communication with their family, stresses or strains at home, or other Mm -hmm. things that might be impacting their operational capability. Right. Or it might be actually, you know, helping in some human factors or systems engineering way on the the person machine interface. Right. Because whenever you've got people that are heavily kind of their mission is heavily rooted in their ability to navigate and adapt to the technology that they're operating. Right. Those that just generates those kinds of opportunities for psychologists to help assist, whether that's in the design of a cockpit or the design and or consult on the use of a simulator or helping train people and prepare people with certain types of human strategies to better integrate with that technology. If you're an operational psychologist and you're assigned to an intelligence unit, you're probably helping support them in their analytic duties. You're helping provide kind of the human terrain information associated with an indirect assessment, perhaps. Or in certain instances, you may be assisting in the support of interrogation or detention operations. And that could be that could be consulting with a detention facility to make it more appropriate, more humane. It sure. could be a way of consulting you know, with staff and training them to better understand the cross-cultural issues associated with you know, uh, working with people, even if they're people in custody that don't share your same ideological or cultural background and providing some added sensitivities to that dimension of human terrain. Mm. Recognize that that particular mission set has received a lot of negative press in the past. And I would tell you in general, if you can kind of scope back from that and just grab a little bit more objectivity around the mission, it is not necessarily any different than what happens stateside with a uh, prison psychologist who is both providing support to the prison itself in terms of guard support and assessment selection of personnel and some EAP type program support, as well as at times perhaps, you know, might be approached with the question of, hey, how do we make this a better environment and a more kind of calming environment for prisoners? Right. Because this is a it's a safety issue. It's a risk issue. It's a quality of experience issue or quality of life issue Mm. for prisoners in custody. Well, don't think for a second that psychologists don't get asked those questions and don't consult on those things. And there's certainly nothing inherently unethical about it. In fact, I would argue, you know, the failure to seize that opportunity to help make things better for people and to improve the quality of the organization and its experience for all involved is almost, more, you know, would be perhaps more unethical than to wade into that sticky issue and try to navigate it appropriately. So anyway, there's all sure. kinds of applications like that. You know, I spent probably the better part of 15 years assigned to different special operations units. And my role there as an operational psychologist included, again, everything from that kind of soup to nuts life cycle from the assessment selection of people coming into the organization to helping oversee and contribute to the design of training programs that stress inoculate or, you know, allow people to have sort of successive approximations in terms of stress and strain on their real environments. As a certified psychologist, that means overseeing some high-risk training like SEER training or survival training. It also means then helping them navigate just life in the organization and the unit, dealing with deployments, doing, you know, a kind of pre-deployment checkup from the neck ups or post-deployment checkup from the neck ups in helping facilitate their the ease of return and their adaptability post-deployment and everything in between. 
Yeah, super rich. I mean, wow. I mean, what cool opportunities to stretch your skills as you know, as a psychologist to assist what it sounds like is is almost at times sort of the population of the unit. You know, the question that kind of comes to my mind as I hear you kind of talk about these operational roles, who's the client in these situations? Like who comes to you and says, you know, this is a problem or this is something that we need to address? Like who typically asks a question? Is that something that you're naturally asking and trying to figure out yourself just as you're psychologically thinking or somebody else coming to you and saying, hey, doc, I need some help in this area? Yeah, great question. I think it really is, it hits in a little bit all spheres. So there are things that you as an embedded provider are paying attention to. You are, you're kind of taking the temperature of the organization and its personnel because you're seeing who's coming in as part of the face of the organization doing assessment selection for suitability when personnel are coming in. You're getting a chance to sit in front of of almost everybody who's coming into an organization to sort of gauge their attributes, you know, the risk profile they're coming in with, their degree of characteristic suitability and so on. But then you're seeing them as they're navigating training. So you're you're able to have a bird's eye view in many instances on who's doing well, who seems to be adapting quickly, maybe who's struggling and seeing that as a seam to exploit to help, you know, help in their navigation so that they kind of complete that training successfully and go on to have a great operational kind of time or career in the organization. You're also getting that from individuals who are recognizing that in themselves, who are saying, hey, I'm struggling with this doc, but because you're there, because of availability, accessibility, and approachability, now they can come to you and you can try to kind of help them navigate their friction point or their challenge at the kind of the point of least resistance at the point in which it's it's occurring kind of the soonest. You're there for training cadre who are saying, you know what, I'm looking at Jimmy or I'm looking at Susie and she seems to be struggling with this element or he seems to be struggling with this element. Is there anything you can recommend? So now you're providing some consultation and mentorship to instructors. You're then also another opportunity to intervene. And organizationally, you've got the ear of the commander or the decision maker, because that's with whom you're assigned, Mm -hmm. who is coming to you and saying, hey, doc, like, can you give me a little bit of a a thermostat on the morale of the organization? Mm -hmm. Can you help me think through, I've got, you know, two or three officers or two or three senior NCOs, and I'd like to get a little bit of a readout of your thoughts on who is probably going to be the best person to take this next leading position. Mm. You know, I'm still going to make the decision, right? I mean, you're just adding to the decision makers kind of decision matrix by providing information and a unique perspective. Yeah, I, absolutely. That incredible. I, I feel like the moral of the story, again, goes back to just the role of a military psychologist generally is, is it comes from every angle and you're doing all of those things all at the same time. You know, you're thinking, you know, in a psychological way, as you look at the organization, you look at the mission set, you look at the individual person or client, so to speak, in situations like that. And you're constantly, you know, consulting with command, people coming to you with questions or needing help. So super valuable, I feel, to hear somebody who's done this for, for a very long time <laughs> share. And we're just kind of scratching the surface. Mark, I think it's pretty clear that you're going to have to be a future guest on yeah. the show in the future. <laughs> I, you know, I think there's so many avenues we really haven't explored. I kind of want to pose a, a sort of abstract question to you and maybe just looking for a brief answer on this. What do you see as being sort of like the 10-year future of military psychology? And is there any sort of neat or interesting domains that are kind of being discussed or broached right now? Or what's your pulse on that? So I think it's a good question. And I won't pretend to have a a crystal ball, but (laughs) if things things continue to grow and develop the way that they have, you know, I, I was mentioning before, you know, 20 years ago, there were maybe two or three operational psychology billets in the Air Force, you know, maybe a few more in the Army, a couple in the Navy. And now that's just been blown out of the water. I mean, commanders have been asking year after year after year for more of these types of positions because they recognize the value just of military psychology in general, and then of embedded or organic assets even more so. And then within that subset, a whole lot when it comes to operational enablers as psychologists. So I just see that continuing to grow. I think it's going to expand into as our military navigates what the next ridgeline is going to look like when it comes to conflict. So whether that's with a near peer and big power competition, or -hmm. whether it has to do with kind of smaller elements in kind of disparate and fractioned or fractionalized, you know, states, 
I think that the expectation is going to be, we're going to continue to have to do more and we're going to have to do it in unique environments and challenging environments. Probably, I think if anything, the pandemic has proved that we can do a whole lot virtually. And there's probably going to be a lot more of that where we're going to be trying to consult on operational issues, on personnel issues, and on personal issues remotely with all the platforms and all the capabilities and technology that we've got. Mm-hmm. I think with cyber systems and cyber warfare, that's going to be, you know, whether it's countering insider threat or thinking about the ways that operational psychologists and other psychologists consult to cyber operations or, you know, other kinds of remote sorts of applications. I think mm-hmm. that's going to be a fertile ground for military psychologists to continue to work in. And of course, no one's going to take away the bread and butter. I mean, I started life as a clinical psychologist, as a Mm -hmm. military clinician working in a mental health clinic, that's not going away. And the reality is you need people in uniform as well as those supporting people in uniform because of the expeditionary nature of the military, of the Department of Defense. You know, sure. you don't need them in the uniform because you're, you know, you, you got to make them part of the system so that you can kind of control them. You need them because you just can't ask a lot of civilian psychologists to go like leave their families and deploy for three months, six months, 12 months right. to embed with an operational element and go spend a bunch of time out in the field. Right. We're going to need military psychologists to be able to do all those things. And that's going to continue for sure. Yeah. Fantastic. Any other closing comments you wanted to jump in with? No, I was just going to say, I really appreciate it. There's a whole lot more to say, and you can probably tell I, I get pretty <laughs> excited and enthusiastic about this, <laughs> about this topic. And it's hard not to, because I, one of the best decisions I ever made as a grad student was the willingness to look into an opportunity to yeah. be a military psychologist. And one of the best things that I would kind of commend anyone, whether you choose to wear a uniform or simply be a psychologist that's supporting the VA, the DOD, or in some other capacity supporting the services, it is an experience unlike any that I'm aware of. And I have certainly not regretted once the decision to do it. It's opened up all kinds of opportunities that I never would have imagined. And so anyways, I just appreciate the opportunity to tell that story. And I certainly appreciate the opportunity to be an inaugural guest on your podcast. Uh, You guys have been great, man. It's been a lot of fun. So I really appreciate it. And I would certainly look forward to the opportunity to do it again. Awesome. Well, Dr. Stahl, you know, appreciate your time, appreciate your enthusiasm. You know, I think this is nothing but value added to Division 19's community, to the future of military psychology, and really to students who want to catch a glimpse into what this career might hold. You know, so, so much rich content that absolutely appearances on the podcast to come. Thank you, sir. Appreciate your time. And we want to respect your time, you know, for your other engagements. Keen, any closing thoughts with us today? No, a lot of uh, great, great thoughts. I like this phrase that you shared just now, check out from the neck up. I'm going to steal that from you and uh, among <laughs> other things and, and use it from here on. Keen, I stole that from the Navy, so it makes sense for you to steal it back. <laughs> yeah, I figure. <laughs> well, thanks, gentlemen. Thank you. We appreciate you and look forward to seeing you again in the future. Sounds good. Take care. Goodbye, sir. Thank you for your time for listening to our episode. We hope this has been beneficial and educational, and we would love to hear from you. Any questions, any suggestions, any feedback, you can send that to our email at div19studentrep at gmail.com. And that is div19studentrep, as in R-E-P, at gmail.com. For more information about our guest speakers and ways to reach out to them, please check our podcast description. And we do have other ways to reach out to us via social media. And Ethan has those information. And Ethan? Yeah, so feel free to engage further with us on our social media platforms, Facebook and Twitter. You can search at Division19 Students to find us on both of those platforms. We thank you for your engagement and listening to our podcast. And we look forward to you joining us on our next episode. Thanks. Take care. Bye-bye.